Adetoro and Rashad come from two different backgrounds. After a heated argument, they both find themselves in a situation that forces them to look to the other for safety. Privilege is a new short film by Omo Pastor that directs and sheds lights on the privilege of black men from different sides of the world. Be sure to check it out now on Flower Con. This week on The Wise Guys. I feel like everything is kind of like set up for our young people's failure. Is that okay? Absolutely not. Um, is there a way to, like, fix it? I don't see it unless we, like, start dismantling systems started from, like, the beginning of time when things were set up for us to, like, fail anyway. Um, and so it's kind of, like, it's discouraging, and you want to, like, educate your people on, like, how we can get up out of this hole of poverty and black wealth and all that and things like that, but... To me, the reality is, is like this is this is a setup for us to like get comfortable in these spaces with public assistance and public housing, and just like until the time like this comes and we realize we don't. Yo, yo, yo! What's up, everybody? This is Kevin Unglad, and you are now tuning in to the Wise Guys Podcast, brought to you by Flowered Concrete. Check it out. Yo, 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 yo! What's going on? What's going on? This is your boy, Kevin Unglad, and unfortunately for another week, uh, Mark is not here, um, but it's going to be okay, all right? Wise community, uh, today's episode is going to be really, really, really good. Um, we're continuing our series in regards to social policies and policies uh, concerning the United States in general that affects uh, African Americans, all right? So today we have a really, really cool episode. Alright, today's episode, Wise Community, Wise Guys, Wise Gals, is called Raised in the System. Again, episode 23 for today's episode is Raised in the System. Alright, so I have two, two, two lovely, lovely guests uh, tonight. Alright, so we have two wise gals in the house. Alright, so the first guest, um, man, uh, uh, there's uh, so much to be said uh, about this person, um, she's excellent. She doesn't. I don't think I've ever told her this in person, but she's definitely uh, been instrumental in terms of me developing as a poet. Um, when I first started out as a writer, as a poet, uh, I used to. Uh, how do I say this? Uh, I used to be very, very, very abrasive <laughs> in regards to, you know, um, me being explicit with my language and all this other stuff. But um, I know. Uh, a couple years back with her uh, lovely um, uh, organization, which I'll allow her to talk about. Uh, she was doing a lot of events uh, based on um, mass incarceration and just uh, uh, social inequality for, uh, you know, blacks in general. And I remember she was telling all of us that were, you know, all, all the writers and poets and artists that were taking part of, you know, her showcases, like, look, I don't want any explicit language, no cursing, none of that. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be really hard for me as a poet. Um, and I think a lot of that had to do with a bit of uh, me just being young and just trying to mature. And as a result of that, man, like I've realized that there's so much more that can be said. Uh, <laughs> there's so much more that can be said with less, especially if you're not, you know, cursing and, um, you know, just using, you know, obsessive foul language. So I really appreciate her for that. But that aside, uh, she is, um, she should be and will become a friend, all right, to the wise community. I'm going to allow her to introduce herself. But ladies and gents, this first guest today, please, please, please welcome, 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 
Felicia Henry, Felicia, thank you, thank you for coming on, and I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Hey, y'all. My name is Felicia Henry. Um, I don't even know what to say because Kevin is so kind and has said so many wonderful things. Um, I'm really low-key, <laughs> really chill. <laughs> so um, I'm like, oh, my gosh, what should I say? But um, like I said, my name is Felicia Henry. I'm currently I'm a Ph.D. student at the University of Delaware studying sociology. Um, like he said, I started and founded an organization called Behind the Walls Between the Lines about five years ago, which was really my attempt at bringing social work, criminal justice, and spoken word into the same space to do art-based activism. So really being able to get underneath issues like mass incarceration, issues like racial injustice, and talk about them to be able to bring people in the same space that would otherwise not get together, would otherwise have um, really tension, emotional conversations and really get underneath these kinds of things and be able to put themselves in different shoes and understand different perspectives. Um, so Behind the Walls has done tons of showcases, tons of workshops. Um, we just celebrated, like I said, our five-year anniversary um, and did Absolutely. it by highlighting black women as a black woman myself. Um, and because most of the artists that I've worked with have been black women, just celebrating what black womanhood is um, and getting underneath some of those stereotypes. Um, and then outside of that, you know, I'm I'm just out here. I'm trying to learn, trying to grow, trying to mature, um, and really just show up in the world intentionally and authentically. So, like I said, thank you so much, Kevin. Thank you, Mark, even though I know you're not here with us right now, but um, thank you for having me. No, absolutely, for sure, for sure. I don't know if you remember this, but this verse merits a curse, but that's not how I'm a treat you. So shout out to my homie. I'm talking about Felicia. Felicia, <laughs> yes, I remember for sure, for sure. Um, nah, so I know, again, um, on the behalf of Mark, we both really appreciate you for coming on, and we're looking forward to today's conversation. Um, but before we move on, we have another lovely guest on the show today, Wise Community. And, you know, she, first and foremost, I just want to thank her so much for coming on because, um, you know, it was very last minute. I asked uh, Felicia, I reached out to her, and I was like, hey, Mark can't make it today due to some unexpected last-minute business, but is it possible that someone within your field can come on and um, be another lending voice and a soundboard in regards to what we're talking about? And she was like, yeah, sure, most deaf. Um, so, you know, I'm going to introduce her now and allow her to explain uh, more about herself and, and who she is. But wise community, we have another wise wise gal in the house tonight. So please, 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 uh, please welcome none other than Ashley Ashley McLean. Did I get the last name right? McLean, right? You got it. You got it right. Excellent. And I appreciate you for getting it right. Yes. Yes, okay. yes. Hey, I'm an English major. I got to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, hey, everybody. Um, thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Felicia. I feel, I feel low-key honored because... You said that you reached out to her and she was she thought of me. So I'm just you know, I'm really feeling myself on this. Thing. <laughs> um, so I'ma just I'ma just own that and hold that. Um but I I don't feel I feel like I'm standing or not standing, but sitting with basically like the greats right now because although I am a social worker and things of that nature, I haven't started any like prolific Thing, but I'm very passionate about my people um, and what got me started in my social work career just growing up in an inner city community in Brownsville, still living in Brownsville and just feeling really passionate about the situations that are happening. Um, so 
most of my roles in social work have pertained to the juvenile justice system. It has pertained to, I worked at Rikers Island for a little while, and now I'm in the education system as a school social worker, and I still find myself addressing the school to prison pipeline issues, and it's an eye-opener, but my heart is in it, and I'm here to, like, basically, like, implement change however I can until my job is done. I love and it. I hope that was... Good. Yeah. Absolutely. Honestly, I'm going to put it like this. I'm sure the wise community can relate. This is the first time ever on the show that Mark or, or myself haven't gotten the chance to say, so, uh, ladies or guys, um, so could you please give us a 30-second uh, elevated pitch synopsis about who you are, what you do? Y'all just came on. Y'all just went right with it. So I appreciate y'all for that. <laughs> um, excellent, excellent, excellent. Ladies, ladies, we have a lot to talk about tonight. Um, I, have a, I have a whole spiel to get to with you all, and I'm looking forward to getting into these topics. You guys ready? I'm ready. All right, excellent. Okay, so the first the first segment of today's episode is called A Youth Misguided, all right? A Youth Misguided. So uh, the first question I wanted to pose to you all um, is this question. Is the U.S. legal system constructed to administer and assist minors prior to them being adults? Now, before you both answer, uh, Felicia, I'm, I'm actually going to ask if you answer first, if that's okay. Um, I'm going to read uh, this uh, quick excerpt that I pulled out from the appeal. All right. So Pennsylvania law requires that people who are accused of serious felony offenses like murder, robbery, and aggravated assault and are at least 15 years old be charged as adults if the case involves the use of a weapon during the crime or if the person has a history of using uh, a weapon. There's all of this implicit and sometimes explicit bias that drives law enforcement into quote-unquote minority communities and that drives these kids into our justice system. So again, is the U.S. legal system constructed to administer and assist minors prior to them um, becoming adults? Felicia, I'll start with you first. So that's a very loaded question. Um, there's lots of layers and, and things, you know, to really dissect with that. But I think that the reality is um, if we understand the construction and foundation of the U.S. legal system, if we understand how the criminal justice system um, has been used to uh, perpetuate violence, to perpetuate white supremacy, to ensure that uh, black folks are on the bottom and always have been on the bottom of the caste system that is the U.S., um, have always been socially stratified to be on the bottom and maintain the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, we understand that there is no answer to that question that would say yes, right? Um, right? There is no way that you could shape it or form it to ever say, like, yes, they are for um, black folks. They have provided space for black folks to be able to thrive in their communities, to be able to get access to resources um, in order for them not to end up in the justice system. So. My answer is no, um, and I particularly say that because I think that when we think about who is represented in the system, um, we primarily see people of color, particularly black and brown people, particularly black men, um, black males, um, even though women, black women particularly, are one of the fastest growth population and are like surpassing men, not necessarily in their numbers, but in their rates. But um, when we look at the system, we see people of color, we see people that are poor, um, we see people that are coming from communities who have been long um, disinvested in. We're, we're talking about folks that that um, society has thrown away a long time ago, right? Um, so I think that 
in terms of administering um, help or resources that are necessary for folks to be able to meet their basic needs in order not to be involved in crime or whatever have you, um, the answer is no. And I think that that is really telling because then when we look at these young people who um, then get involved into the criminal justice system, I think it would not do us justice to look at like, oh, did they commit the crime or did they not commit the crime? But it's like getting underneath that. Like, what do we even, you know, consider to be a crime? But then also, how do we explain the fact that someone felt like they needed to pick up a gun, particularly a young person, pick up a gun or, you know, pick up, like, whatever may be the case to be able to um, provide for themselves or their families? So I think, like I said, very layered, very nuanced, but I think overall we're looking at a system um, that has not historically, and I don't know that if it's ever possible to really be able to respond to the needs of the people that end up being involved in it. Mm, That sounds really good. Um, Ashley, could you sound off? Um, Felicia's response is, is basically spot on, and a lot of it resonates with me when I just think of, like, um, Adult, adult males that I know who've been touched by the criminal justice criminal justice system, excuse me, as adults, and the lack of information that they had at 25. It's like, why don't you know this at 25? Why wasn't somebody telling you like what your rights are before you got to this space where like you got uh, a DUI, for instance, and it's like, oh, now you have to be taught the law. Like you just don't know like basic right. rights for yourself as a human being, and so. Just from, like, personal experiences, I've seen, like, the lack of information um, that is, like, the information that's not given to our young people. And, like, things that I'm telling people that they don't know, and they're in my age group, and I'm telling them, well, you know you can ask the police officers to, like, run a description back to you if they stop you. Mm -hmm. I really could do that. People just don't know their basic rights, and it's because it's not available to them. And if you don't take that action or if you're not, you know, putting yourself in... A community, a community where people are talking about it. You'll just live your entire life not knowing it until you're touched by the criminal justice system in a way that you never thought you would be. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's. I think what you both are saying is very interesting. I, um, <clears throat> due to your backgrounds, I'm sure. Obviously, I'm sure you both are familiar with the story of um, uh, Centoya Brown, who was recently released and granted clemency for a murder she was uh, accused of uh, committing when she was 16. Um, and uh, have, you both have you both are familiar with her and her story, right? Yeah. 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 And um, I think it's interesting because it's like she, you know, she was tried um, as an adult and uh, at 16, and it's crazy because she said even at that point, you know. I think by the time she was like four, like four, four or five years in, she realized not only did she realize that she had, you know, made a mistake, but also she couldn't understand or she couldn't fathom and wrestle with the idea that the criminal justice system had failed in a sense to see her at the time as what she was, which was a minor and as a kid. And, you know, um, she couldn't fathom and understand and wrestle with the fact that, you know, she wasn't, you know, granted some kind of leeway or like, you know, um, leniency in terms of not seeing that she was a kid and that her brain wasn't fully developed. And that, you know, at the time when you're a kid, you're just, you know, you're just doing the decisions that you think are right based off of what you feel but you don't really rationalize and really think before you commit any actions, you know. Um, And, you know, I don't really want to get into that, but I think it's kind of interesting because how many stories have we heard of people like her? Uh, There's also a... um 
man uh there's a poet ah man i can't remember his name right now um i don't know if you've heard of this guy reggie uh yeah reggie Dwayne betts um have you ladies heard of him Dwayne betts reggie Dwayne um, betts yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, he like I think he I think what was it 15, 14, 16 mm -hmm. um you know, was boosting cars and stuff like that and you know, he he went to prison because of that, spent like what I think 10, 12 years in there and obviously became a huge success story afterwards, but because of that, I think he had an issue where they they like after he graduated from Yale, they didn't they didn't want him to like take the bar because, you know, because of his past criminal history and his record. So, I think that's interesting when like you're, you know, your offenses when you're a when you're young when you are a youth how how that always comes back to haunt you but at the same time not only does it come back to haunt you the what 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 is heartbreaking about it is that you know the the system itself you know tends to recognize our own as adults um and that right there is truly truly unfortunate so i want to push to, uh, towards the second question um it's actually a two part question ashley i'll start with you first and then uh, felicia you can you can sound off afterwards um and uh, let's see here. Ashley, uh, I guess you could just pick it apart as you'd like. So the questions are, is it a deliberate act for first-time juvenile offenders to be held in jail as they wait for court dates? That's part one of the question. And the second part, you could uh, feel free to ask me to repeat them again. The second part is, why have we accepted a system that does so much harm to our kids? So feel free to answer how you'd like. Um. Can you just repeat the second question? I heard the first question. Can you repeat the second question? Sure thing. Why have we accepted a system that does so much harm and damage to our kids? Mm. Um, so, so I'm going to answer the first question. Sure thing. Um, I, feel, I feel like almost like the first question, like there's a lot of layers to why our young people um, are, are held um, and for their, during their trial time. And it's like a direct link almost to poverty in our community. So they set bills at, like, rates that they know that families can't afford. Most of the families of the young people that um, become incarcerated are living in public housing, so they can't put a house up to get their, their child out. And so that we have minors sitting in a system feeling like people don't care about them, but the reality is is that it's not built for you to be released once you are faced before a judge. Right. There's never a time when, um, I mean, I can think of myself, but I feel like I'm one of the, the ones that are blessed. When that happened to my brother, mm -hmm. we had to put our house up. Mm -hmm. We had to put up half of half of the bell, half of the bell. But the reality is, his friend was also incarcerated. I mean, his, yes, his friend had also got locked up, and his friend didn't have that same advantage. And so, wow. while James was being released, his friend had to sit and wait until his family was able to figure something out. So um, poverty is very, is like definitely directed to like kids sitting in and waiting for like, you know, waiting for their next court date and then their court dates are stretched far and in between for those who are released so that you forget if you're not on top of your court date. So I feel like everything is kind of like set up for our young people's failure. Is that okay? Absolutely not. Um, is there a way to like fix it? I don't see it unless we like start dismantling systems started from like the beginning of time when things were set up for us to like fail anyway. Um, and so it's kind of like, it's discouraging. 
and you want to, like, educate your people on, like, how we can get up out of this hole of poverty and black wealth and all that and things like that. But to me, the reality is, is, like, this is, this is a setup for us to, like, get comfortable in these spaces with public assistance and public housing and just, like, until the time, like, this comes and we realize we don't have anything to help our loved ones or, our, or my son or my daughter to, like, get out of this situation that they're in. Um, and so, did I answer your first question? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it was good. Okay. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Okay, you got to keep me accountable, Kevin, because I can go off on a tangent. Oh, I got you, I got um, you, no worries. <laughs> um, and the second question was, why Why does the system do, do more harm than good? Yeah, yeah, so, like, why have we accepted or allowed a system that does so much harm to our own children? I don't, I... Truthfully and transparently, I don't even think I know, like, an answer to that as far as, like, why. Mm -hmm. um, when I worked on Rikers Island, my job description, what you read on paper, said that I was providing services to help um, inmates transition back into the community. Wow. In reality, I went to work every day, and I watched um, The View, Jerry Springer, Maury, play crossword puzzles, and that was enough. I wasn't provided any, like, like solid resources to help these young people transition. So while they say, like, it's rehabilitative, they're not doing anything different than what they would do outside. So how am I transition them, transitioning them back into the world better people or, like, reformed people? It's like I'm going to put them in a housing area where is most of their where they're gang affiliated so it's like you know it's like their little hood like you know so you make them comfortable in a setting that they shouldn't be comfortable in mm -hmm. and then you tell the world to get money you're like oh this is what we have this social worker doing and that's not what i'm doing which is a large reason as to why i left because it was kind of like messing with my morals i'm not helping this young man at all i'm actually just you know making this time feel like he's having free time with his with his sister and that, and that's not what it is like you're right. actually like in a system that's like plotting on your downfall right wow uh felicia sound off so um i i echo a lot of what ashley has already said i think that the reality is um there's a lot of things that distinguishes folks that are behind bars um, detained pre-trial and those that are not um, actually talked about the fact that folks can't even afford bail um, but even when we think about like what is deemed to be a risk even how we think about risk assessments and who's considered to be serious risk versus not that like there's a whole bunch of things right so like if you consider a young person who okay well they're right now on this robbery charge um, and we're going to detain him because he's had six previous arrests for X, 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 and X, and X, and X. Okay, but what neighborhood does he come from? How is that neighborhood patrolled? Why has he been arrested six previous times? And how does that uh, factor into what you deem him to be in terms of serious, serious risk or not? So I think that there's a lot of things at play with um, why folks end up being detained in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the reality is we really need to look at pretrial detainment in, or detention um, and understand the impact of that, the effects of that, right? Like um, when, when, when I think back to some of the young people that I've had on my caseload, like the impact of being behind bars, even when 
they ended up getting the case tossed out or ended up getting an alternative to incarceration program, like, that stays with you. That doesn't just, like, you know, you, you don't just wake up one morning and you forget what happened on the inside and, like, none of that. So I think that we also have to reckon with the fact that not only is pre-trial detention problematic in a lot of ways for anyone, but especially for our young people. Yeah. Um, like, think about the formative years. You know, Kevin, you talked about the fact that, like, brains are not even developed. Like, neuroscience, all of these smart people have already talked about, like, how long it takes for our brain to develop. But understand what they're also saying is that things are still forming. And so when we lock young people up, it's still forming, you know? What do yeah. we know about the impact, the long-term impact of locking them up when they actually get older? Um, and then the second question in terms of how are we okay with that, why are we okay with that, um, I don't think that we are. I think that there are a lot of people who are not okay with that. And I think that if you point to any of the folks on the ground, any activists, any advocate, community organizations, grassroots organizations, um, there are folks that have been talking about this for a long, long time, hmm. um, that have been committed to ensuring that young people are not locked up. If we even think a couple of years back, to literally a couple of years back in this decade, um, like thinking about how uh, young people were still eligible for like life without parole, um, and even Pennsylvania particularly had like the largest share across the country of young people who had been incarcerated at as a young person and were now like in their 50s, 60s. And like, what? You're telling me that the, the, the crime, the harm that you committed at 16 deemed you worthy of being locked up for the rest of your life? So, you know, I don't think that we're okay with it. I think that there are a lot of folks on the ground that are like, absolutely not. Let's change this. I think that's one of the perfect examples of why we have ended solitary confinement for young people officially on paper anyway but like things like that have been moving and shaking because people are not okay mm, yeah for sure for sure that's excellent ladies for sure um so i wanted to move on to our next question here and uh, i'm pulling a lot of this information from uh the website of uh, equal justice initiative so the sentencing project state-by-state -state analysis showed that in six states, African-American youth are at least 10 times as likely to be held in placement as our as our white youth, excuse me, New Jersey, Wisconsin, Montana, Delaware, Connecticut, where I currently live, and Massachusetts, while three states, Vermont, West Virginia, and New Hampshire, decreased their racial disparity by at least half uh, the disparity uh, by at least half, excuse me, and then the disparity at least doubled in Maryland, Montana, Connecticut, De uh, Delaware, and Wisconsin. Uh, the disparity exists because of differences in how young people of color are treated at every point of contact with the justice system, but the growth of the incarceration disparity is likely due to growing disparities in arrests, which feeds the rest of the system, says Joshua Rovner, who studies juvenile justice at the Sentencing Project. So I say all this to lead you all with this question. Um, are racial biases and stereotypes of black youth at the center of increased arrests? What do you What do you both think? I'll start off with uh, Felicia first. Things that are sentenced and biases what? Oh, sorry. You want me to reread the question? Yes, please. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> uh, so the question was: Are racial biases and um, and state? Uh, sorry, are racial bias and stereotypes of black youth at the center of increased arrests? Whether it's in these specific, whether it's in these specific states I just mentioned, or just within African American communities across the country. Um, so I think 
that tying it back to one of my earlier points, I think that, um, again, we have to look at the system as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just look at this country as a whole. I think that this country has a deep ingrained fear of the black body mm-hmm. um, and of black people. And so, you know, when we understand that, then we understand why police are more likely to patrol neighborhoods full of black people, mm-hmm. um, why judges are more likely to see the black faces in their courtroom and um, rule unfavorably, unfavorably or rule more um, harshly. Like, that's why we see even people that are not police, vigilantes, like out here, street justice in their eyes. That's all we see, permit patty, like, when we really look at it, it's not just in the criminal justice system. It's in society writ large. That's mm-hmm. why you have people like George Zimmerman shooting down Trayvon Martin because, oh, well, you know, I'm on patrol and he looks suspicious. And, yeah, but if it was a white young man, you wouldn't. Right. Um, or the police officer saying, you know, I'm just trying to make it home um, and I'm going to make it home at all costs. And, you know, the it's a near right looking like a big burly dude at 12 years old like like thinking about those things we have to really get underneath that and understand like it is not just oh like we're stereotypical and we have a bias it's because it has been ingrained um that there is something to fear that it is something to hate there is something to um be non-human um, from the gate, from the beginning of the foundations of this country. So um, do I think that racial biases and stereotypes and all of those things have to do with why we see more young people, more black young people, more brown young people being incarcerated, being detained, being arrested, being caught in the system? Absolutely, hands down, no question about it. Um, but I don't want to limit it to biases or stereotypes of individual people either because I want that to be on the table that like we're not talking about um, this police force or this particular community or this particular vigilant we're talking about a larger society um, that these systems or these people then operate in mm, that's really good um, Ashley um, I actually don't have a thing to add to um what Felicia just said, like every single thing that she said resonates with me um, in regards to the question that you asked. I, I don't have anything mm-hmm. to add. It's just, it just the way, it's sad, but it's just like the way the world has been taught to treat black people. Right. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm right there with you both. Uh, I wanted to throw this in here. Um, it's not a question. I'm just going to throw this out at you guys. Um this is from the appeal as well. Uh, recent research suggests that sending teens through the adult justice system and incarcerating youth with adults can have grave consequences. Youth held in adult prisons and jails are twice as likely to die by suicide than their adult counterparts and roughly 36 times more likely to die by suicide than their peers held in juvenile facilities. Uh, in addition, researchers also found that young people sent through the adult justice system are more likely to commit new offenses and commit them more quickly than similar charged youth who went through the juvenile system. I think that part in itself interested me. Um, but you, you know, um, Felicia, I'll start off with you first. Uh, you can uh, tackle uh, the statement however you, you, you feel, whether it's uh, 
whether it's in the one that addresses about the youth held in adult prisons that are more than likely to die by suicide than their adult counterparts, or the part that talks about um, those that uh, those young folks that go through the adult justice system are more than likely to commit new offenses. I think that's interesting because uh, it leads me to wonder and to uh, and to consider whether if implementing young kids, uh, young children within the adult system early, um, if, if that plays into the the, the, the deliberate um, uh, points of recidivism where you have a lot, you know, having the fact that you have young kids going through the adult system, it has them, you know, recurring and repeating offenses, which allows them to go right back in. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm curious. I just wanted to get your thoughts. Yeah, so I think my thoughts are, it makes sense. Um, I remember uh, when I was in my grad school program, um, I was working in an internship or a placement, a field placement where we led uh, groups with young women who were incarcerated in an adult facility, um, an adult women's facility, um, and it was it was mind-boggling to me. So they had this policy, um, sight and sound policy, so the young people, the young women could not um, be seen or see, um, be seen by or see the older women, vice versa, so they, they had different movements. Um, if the if the older women were being moved in the facility, the young women had to stay in this one little room and, you know, shoot the breeze until they were okay to move and all this kind of stuff. It was very complicated. Um, but what I saw that it did was leave the young women very isolated um, because this was not a facility for young women. This was a facility for older women. So mm-hmm. in terms of programming, in terms of access to resources, in terms of advocacy, in terms of people checking on them to um, walk with them about their uh you know, their journey as a young woman in the system, like they didn't have those kinds of supports because they were a a minority population within this larger facility. And so I can definitely see how um, young people fare worse in adult facilities and adult systems because they weren't designed for them. Um, There are certain considerations, certain, um, just certain things that you have to take um, into perspective when dealing with young people um, that are really significant um, and really important that you bring them to the forefront and that you address them as opposed to a, adult um, adult populations. And in terms of like, you know, committing new offenses, you know, folks have said, um, it, it's been shown that like, you know, folks when exposed to more quote unquote criminal behavior, um, in that way are more likely to adapt and, you know, all of the research, all of the people that do that kind of research um, can tell you. But, you know, it doesn't, it, it makes sense in the sense that, you know, folks are being exposed to things that they would not have been exposed to had they not been in that situation. So can I learn how to do quote unquote other crimes and all of that if I'm just around folks that have done such and such crimes, not to say that folks are just more criminal or not, like, whatever, like, not getting into that. But if you're saying, like, you know, I'm now surrounded by people who have done a lot of different things, and I'm, like, in community with them, I'm in physical proximity to them, I'm learning, I'm picking up, I'm hearing, I have to learn how to adjust and carry myself in the facility, like, sure. So I think that those statistics overall should show us how important it is to set up spaces, particularly for young people who are in the justice system, and treat them appropriately and according to where they are in their development. Thank you for that. Um, Ashley, uh, what would you like to say? Um, yeah, just so I think 
earlier, I forgot what question it was, but uh, Felicia had said something in regards to like this being uh, a young person's formative years. So like they're very malleable. So right now you put a young person in the prison system and everything that they see, even though it's bad, they're soaking it up. And even mm-hmm. though they may tell themselves, I'm not going to repeat this behavior when I get out. I'm going to do something different when I go out. It's because it has become ingrained in them based on how long they've been in there. Because you can be, I've never been incarcerated myself, but just being a person who went to work on Micah's Island, there were certain um, behaviors that I would like take up as soon as I got into the housing area that was necessary, that I felt was necessary for me to exist in that space. Wow. Um, and, I, and it was like, you have to detach yourself from it. Um, when you leave work so that it doesn't like kind of like bleed into your your family life your personal life and it was a lot of work for me to try to detach myself every day from like this persona that I felt like I had to take up to be in this area so thinking about somebody who is sleeping there um you know basically for uh, Felicia's point having community there how do you detach yourself after you've been there for three weeks four weeks like consistently, consistently, like you're not you're not having a break where you're coming home to family and then going back to that day. And because they are young people and because they are malleable and this is a time that we're supposed to be teaching them right from wrong or like when you do this, um, I'm gonna be able to teach you how to do it better the next time and then them not having that and then being and they're being told over and over again, like you put yourself here. Like nobody else put you here. Not your community, not the fact that you never was taught, you know, the law and things you put yourself here, like is this consistent thing of I'm to blame for my situation, so I need to grow up, I need to man up, I need to woman up. And that's not that's not fair. Like it's just almost like why why do they have to grow up so fast? But to still like to be in that community is kinda like to adjust to it so that you're not isolated. You yeah. don't feel isolated or if you become isolated people start looking at you funny. So it's like you have to take up a different persona when you're in that system. Um, and it's very hard to detach yourself from it. It's, inter- it's interesting that you say that, Ashley, because um, I kind of wanted to uh, pose this to you both. Um, so whoever, feel free to answer. Um, so, uh, Ashley, what, what, what you're what you're essentially saying and what you're getting at, are you essentially saying that whether it's the lawmakers, the policymakers, or the people, or the or, or the people, the folks that work inside the system itself, in terms of you know within these jails or these detention centers or prisons, are you saying that there's a form of desensitization that takes place that that forces uh, those to kind of separate you know their true persona as to who they are when they are with uh, these uh, offenders or these uh, so-called offenders, as you will. Um, absolutely. Like, I feel like it's sad, but, like, a lot of me have become numb to, like, even, like, lockdowns. Like, so if I got caught in a lockdown, it was, like, more so, here we go again, opposed to, like, and I realized, like, the first time I was in a lockdown, it was, like, shocking to me. Uh, my my palms were sweaty and things like that, and it was, like, you just gradually just, like, this is part of, this is part of my everyday. Hmm. So like there's no need to react. And I don't think I intentionally do it. I just I just I just felt like, you know, even my response to some of like the guys, like whenever they were like ha- were they having a bad day or if it was a fight in the housing area that I was in, it was so easy for, it got so easy for me to be like, I'm not coming back to you guys for a week and like add punishment. Like I was kinda turning into a correction officer and I was a social worker. 
Um, wow. And it was, like, really sad because I'm, like, I'm becoming this hard person and that's not my job. But that environment, like, almost, like, naturally, I don't know, it's, it's weird. It's almost like it's, like, a, a disease. It's, like, contagious. Like, you walk in and you never really see any smiles. Nobody should be happy. Like, you have to really be intentional about, like, being positive in that space. It just, like, kind of breeds, like, negativity. Mm -hmm. um, and so in order to kind of adjust to it, you just don't, you get to a place where you don't even acknowledge it no more. It's, like, it's just a way, it's just a, it's just a part of my life that's like this. Right. Um, so, yeah. It's interesting um, that you, yeah. yeah, no, it's interesting that you uh, both share um, these thoughts and these uh, experiences because, um, uh man, I I I think I mentioned this uh, about four or five four or five episodes ago on the podcast. I recently had a student um a couple of months back. I think um I I don't even recall, but I recently had a student a couple of months back. He got um he got caught up and involved in a shootout. Um it was him and a friend um going up against two other uh, uh young boys from their neighborhood and um I was so so distraught because this is young, uh, this is a young man when I was teaching him when I when when he was in 8th grade. Um he was the star of the basketball team. You know, he was he was well liked, very popular, had a very charming smile. And I remember like as so even as a teacher uh, myself what I what, what I attempt to do or what I always try to do is to kind of like, you know, give them pep talks, you know, as a coach would, um especially when they graduate. Like once, you know, the graduation is over, I usually pull all my boys aside, the ones the ones that I worry about more so and you know I just talk to them and I'm, and I'm you know I'm always you know real with them I'm like look you're great you have the potential to be so great I see so much in you than you see in yourself but you know there's just a certain type of way you have to go about living your life you know you can't get distracted from you know people doing this people doing that and the third you need to focus on yourself in order to get to where you want to go and with this particular kid I was like look if you really want to play basketball at a high level whether it be high school or college you really need to make sure that you maintain focus you don't hang around hang out with the wrong people the wrong crowd and that you know everything you do is intentional in terms of getting to where you need to get to so um when a former coworker of mine reached out to me and she and, and she sent me a text saying that he had gotten um locked up because of what happened it truly truly broke my heart because um you know when when you when you become a part of this these kids lives when something of that nature happens not only does it affect the, the you know their families but it affects the community essentially overall so me as the teacher you know it really affected me as well and i say all that to say i often worry about him because he's 16 i worry about you know you know what's going to happen to him is he going to be rightfully placed you know within a juvenile detention center are they going to try him as an adult because one thing i failed to mention but what happened was that um in the midst of the shootout as he was trying to escape, um, I think he was driving the car and he uh, reversed and uh, crashed into um, a pole. And in between the car and the pole was a 75, 80-year-old woman and she died. So um, I, I, I'm scared because I don't know how that situation is going to turn out for him. But it's just like, it's, 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 it's scary to know that one single moment like that, especially when you are um, a minor, can define your whole existence moving forward. You know, um, And I think it goes back to what you said, Ashley, like this is a kid who I said was very charming, uh, you know, uh, you know, again, basketball star, a jock, all of the girls liked him. He had a really nice smile. And like I could just imagine what that system itself will do to him and how it will change him as a person. Like there won't be any smiles, um, you know, or, or just like any good times, um, at least in the near future, if it doesn't you know, work out in his way or his favor. Um, but yeah, man, this is a lot. But how y'all doing? Y'all good with me? Y'all here so far? Y'all okay? It's, it's, it's 
Cool. <laughs> so, Daniela, I, do, I do want to jump in and say two yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say mm-hmm. um, that, one, we, we always have to, and I think to Ashley's point, like, Ashley and I have shared offices um, where we've sat and we've cried or we've uh, sat and we have just been like, yo, bro, what in the world yeah. is going on? Um, because we are working with young people, building relationships with young people who get caught up in a whole bunch of stuff and, like, it's out of their control um, to the point where, like, now we're talking about prison time. We're talking about years. We're talking about, you know. And so for us to even, like, reckon with that and deal with that and then sometimes have to support the young people through that in the sense that, like, Yo, I know that the charge that they're trying to get you for, you're not coming home, baby. Like, mm-hmm. and what do I do? What do I say to you? How do right. I support you knowing that when you go to this trial, they're like, yeah, yeah, no, lock him up. Like, give him prison time. Um, and so, you know, we, we have experience with understanding that kind of, like, burden, that kind of, like, weight. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, Kevin, to your point, like, yes, it's not just the young person. It's not just the young person's, you know, immediate family, chosen family. Like, it is a lot of people that support, that work with, that inter- interact and engage with that young person. But I think it's also important for us to understand, like, what does that mean for young people to get caught in certain situations that we, quote-unquote, would never imagine would be caught in a certain situation, right? Like, right. how do we investigate when young people make certain decisions why they're making those decisions? Mm-hmm. Like, instead of just slapping a label on them and saying, oh, you know, that was a bad kid, or slapping a label like, wow, he had so much promise, and then he did something super, super, like, it's like understanding, like, what made you get in the in the driver's seat of that car? Like, how did you get in that that whole situation in the first place? And understanding, like, back to your original question in terms of what kinds of support or resources or things that you need that you did not have access to and did not get that you then made X and X decisions or felt like you didn't have any choice but to make those decisions. And then the second thing is um, I also always want to, and this is something that I've learned um, and something in terms of the being desensitized and like being numb to what's going on because I think that is just normal and natural um, right. because it's just a lot for the human to deal with to mm-hmm. deal with all of that kind of trauma right. um, but also to acknowledge the fact that people are resilient right like, yeah. the, acknowledge the fact that people can still have joy that people can still be creative and, and thrive and have um, ideas and goals and dreams and vision, like the whole shebang. Yeah. So I always want to put that in there too because I feel like a lot of times, especially for our, our young people, but especially as we're talking about the criminal justice system, like we talk about all the bad things and we should because it is appropriate, it is true. Um, but I also want to celebrate the fact that especially some of the young people that have been in my office have been super resilient and even in the face of you know, the charges, even in the face of maybe having to spend time in jail, are still like, yo, that was crazy, that's trauma. And also, here are the other things that I want to invest my time and energy into Hmm. and celebrate, like the fact that I made it through or the fact that, like, you know, and whatever may be the case, but also acknowledging resilience, because that's important, and we don't ever want to make it seem like, you know, somebody's life is just absolutely done if they ever get involved in the justice system too, because that's not true. It gets harder, and it and it definitely like 
there's a lot of negative consequences, but people can also thrive and survive. Right. Well, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Ashley, is there anything you want to add before we move on to the next segment? Uh, no. Okay. Okay. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. No worries. Um, so I guess we've already been in this mode for a while now, uh, uh, but sorry about that, wise community. So the second segment is stuck in the system, although I feel as if we've already been stuck on this topic itself, but that's good. That's good. Um, cool. So, uh, ladies, I wanted to throw this, um, uh, throw some more information at you from the Equal Justice Initiative. So, um, of the 48,000 and 43 youth held in juvenile facilities across the country, all right? Um, so that includes residential treatment centers, detention centers, training schools, and juvenile jails and prisons in the United States as of October 2016. So obviously the numbers probably, uh, obviously were updated. But 44% of uh, the the youth here were African American. All right. So again, we're talking residential treatment centers, detention centers, training schools, and juvenile jails and prisons. But however, only 16% of youth nationwide are black. Uh, and I also wanted to throw this fact that, um, out at you both. A new fact sheet from the Censusing Project shows that racial disparity in youth incarceration has increased since 2001, when black youth were four times as likely as whites to be incarcerated. Overall, the racial disparity between black and white youth in custody increased 22% since 2001. So I throw these numbers at you, and I put out this information to throw in there um, another question, a random question that I uh, I don't really happen to have on my notes. Uh, the question is, uh, is, there a, is there a catering or um, a favoring of white um, juvenile youth as opposed to their numbers being lower than young black males or black women? Um, so I'm just wondering, what do you both think about that in regards to the racial disparity? So obviously, as I, as I mentioned, the numbers have increased uh, for black youth since 2001, but overall, uh, the racial disparity between black and white youth um, increased 22%. So there's a huge gap there. What do you both think? Are are black minorities being targeted uh, more so? Whoever would like to tackle this. I not didn't give a name, but wh whoever, <laughs> either between you both, who would like to go first? Um, I, could, I could jump in. Okay, um, for sure. Like, as soon as you finish, like, asking a question, like, I'm sitting here and I'm like, absolutely. Like, um, it's, I do also, I, I try a lot of things. So I was in an internship that primarily, like, focused on, like, poverty and how poverty is the answer to a lot of the things that we struggle with as black and brown people and mm -hmm. how we address things. Yeah. Um, and so when you go into like these courthouses majority of the time you see our black and brown brothers and sisters being represented by a court appointed a court appointed attorney mm -hmm. um because they can't afford an attorney that's actually going to invest in like getting the best results for them mm -hmm. um and so what that can look like sometimes is like whatever the judge says goes or they just tell the they'll tell the kid like this is what's going to happen. I'm not, don't ask me any questions. You did this. I've seen, like, like attorneys, like, just not be, like, supportive. It was almost as if, like, whatever the judge says, go, period. That's it. Opposed to, you see, I don't think I've seen a lot of white people in court. 
Um, to be honest, every time I've gone to court is either black or brown people, which is also something to say. Like, why don't they ever have to like face a judge? Like, what is happening before before the process of getting to a judge? Like, who's getting paid? Who's saying what? Um, and then even to Felicia's point, in our communities, police presence is heavy. Right. The only time that you see police presence really in white communities is when a white person may have seen a few black people in the area and now they have like monitoring on the block. Right. But like like the expectation for black communities is for us to like turn up and like somebody's going to do something so make sure you're on this corner, make sure you're here because you know how they get over there. Like that's yeah. the mentality, that's the ideas and they're very open um, in my community in Brownsville. The cops are very open with talking about like their distaste for our community. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll wow. come, I've, I've, cops have taken 40, 50 minutes to get on my block um, for something that was like a legit emergency. And it's like, you know, they come, they're very like, you know, chill, like what's going on, what's happening? I, I have an emergency. Like there's a lack of concern unless we're doing something that they can lock us up for. Like if you're not doing something where I can come and lock somebody up, like I have no interest to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's felt in like the community. Um, and so I just feel like it's like the police presence that's in the community and the black communities in comparison to the white communities. And of course, like the financial resources and the knowledge that is given to our black brothers and sisters opposed to those that are given to our white counterparts. Mm. Excellent. Felicia? Sound yeah. Everything, everything Ashley said. This is also why I'm like, this is why I got to rock out with Ashley because Ashley, my main man, is an owner. You know it. Um, but, like, yes, everything that she said, and I think the reality is we, we as a society criminalize black existence. And so it doesn't matter what they were doing, what they weren't doing, like just to be breathing is is criminal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just to be existing is criminal, and so like what we're understanding how folks respond to things that black youth do as opposed to what white youth may do. If we understand it in the context of oh everything is criminal, then we understand why some things that would have never led to an arrest um, or jail time or detention or residential treatment or anything like that. That's when we understand, like, oh, okay, so it's not just, like, that this is objectively something criminal. It's the fact that the body that did it is is considered criminal, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about, like, white youth, the reality is, like, white youth are not smoking marijuana less. They are not um, committing less types of crimes. They are not just, like, um, so, so just pure and goodly and nothing is ever... That's not the case, but it's thinking about how are they responded to. So when you steal somebody's phone, um, you know, one of your classmates' phone, does your teacher call school safety, the school safety agents, and say, I need to report a robbery, um, you need to take this young person out of the school because they, you know, they committed a robbery, or do they say, hey, you know, get back the phone, call it a night? Or maybe I'll write you up for detention and keep and keep it going. But, you know, when it's I, I had cases of young people who, you know, they might have taken up a phone and all of a sudden they face a robbery. It's like, what is going wow. on? A phone? Okay. You know, so thinking about even the way that we police black youth definitely contributes to what we see in the justice system, period. So mm-hmm. are we saying, you know, folks have made the 
the parallel for the opioid epidemic versus the crack epidemic. Like, like, just think about it. Just think about addiction. Addiction is not racial. Um, addiction is not like we people all from all classes, all backgrounds, all racial and ethnic groups can be addicted. But when we see the responses to addiction within certain communities then we understand, oh, word, word, like one is an addiction, one is a treatment, one is a we need to wrap you up um, in love and support and figure out all the programs, and then the other one is we just need to lock you up because you're out here polluting the streets. Um, So, again, like it's really just about understanding how do we criminalize black existence, how do we police black people, black folks, black life, and then how does that directly relate to why we see them overrepresented um, based on their, you know, proportion in the population in residential treatment facilities and jails and prisons all all over. You know, that's good. That's good. Um, So I'm going to pose a bonus question. um, And you both don't have to answer it if you don't want to. Either or could answer it. And if you both um, have experience in it and you'd like to answer, that's fine. Um, And then then after that, I have about two more questions before I let you both go. Uh, The bonus question um, more so is coming from... um, uh, my background as a teacher, uh, so you know, being that I'm a teacher, you know, I see a lot of uh, these um, uh, these interesting uh, discriminatory practices, um, not just implemented but happening every day in regards to you know uh, suspension and um, you know detentions and things like that. That you know more so have us as teachers governing students and you know being authority figures of control and discipline so we're like we were seen uh, we're seen and we're 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 being pressured to you know implement more you know disciplinary actions within schools as opposed to more you know providing more content and you know uh, pedagogy and educating the children so the question that i would like to pose to you both is uh, with your experiences, uh, whether you know, as social workers, I don't, you know, I don't know what your histories um, are going into schools. But do you both? Can you provide any examples for me? Can you tell me yes or no? Do you both see any correlation between the school to prison pipeline and you know, obviously what you guys have worked with in your fields? Go ahead and take that, Ashley, because I know you have not. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, ah. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, I work in a peculiar system. So I work in a charter school system, Mm -hmm. um, which has its own, uh, narrative of being, uh, a punitive system. Yeah. You know, school system. Oh, yeah. Um, so the fact that, that alone, the fact that punitive and school exist in the same, um, sentence, Mm -hmm. for me is not okay. Um, I transitioned from, so I'm a school social worker now, um, and I'm, so I'm new in this role. However, before this, I was a behavior specialist. Um, in my opinion, a behavior specialist is a correction officer for the charter schools. Um, uh, the things that children in middle school were getting in trouble for, um, literally, it was like it was a split screen of what it felt like. Sorry, Kevin, I'm gonna try to get my words together because I'm trying. I'm gonna try not to get irritated. No, it's fine. It's okay. It's okay. This is take your time. Yeah, like this is this is this is something that this is the reason why I'm still in the charter system because I I strongly believe that I'm supposed to be here to implement change. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so my first charter school that I was in, um, we had a system where if kids misbehave, um, and misbehaving can equate to like not picking up your pencil before the teacher counted down to five, um, slouching, uh, sucking your teeth, all of those things could qualify for uh, a detention. Um, and you would not go to lunch, and you would not go to recess. You would sit upstairs with me, um, have your lunch with me, and a whole bunch of your other peers who did very minor things. Um, and a kid could be up there for a week with with me just for sucking their teeth every day and miss out on lunch or recess and not have um, – they also didn't have extracurricular activities. So they didn't have dance, art, gym. So you have a child who's doing a full day of school um, in class. They can't talk to their peers, God forbid, because they'll get a detention. Um, and then you take them away from their peers during a social time. And the time is called loss of social privileges. That's what we named it. Um, and then they just go home. There's no, There's no teaching there. There's no... Reflect, no true reflection of, like, why sucking your teeth is wrong because it's, like, you, it's, like, how do you explain to that kid you didn't pick up your pencil fast enough so you're going to miss free time? Yeah. Like, that, that doesn't make sense. That's problematic. So now this, now I had kids who, and then when they do good things, they weren't recognized. So I had kids who were continuously doing these bad things because the bad things gave, like, brought attention to them. And so now I'm a kid in middle school who's relating doing bad things to getting attention because when I do good things, I only get a pat on the back. So right, that right there was the same equivalent to me being on Rikers Island just a year before where they only got free time if they behaved in their housing area. Right. So if they didn't behave in the housing area with their peers and listen to the correction officer, they were not going to go outside with their other uh, peers or inmates and things of that nature. So that's like, it was literally like a parallel process for me to watch like kids have to do the same thing, like walk in the hallway silent, hands at your side, do not say anything. It's like, we're literally preparing them for prison. Like they know how it's, any of my kids in fifth grade through eighth grade in the previous school that I was in with the go to Rikers Island, they would be able to fit right in based on what they're learning in school on how to behave. Wow. And 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 that for me was just like it's mind blowing. Yeah. Because I've even visited the school and they're still doing the same thing. Wow. Like they just don't see the correlation right. of it. It's like people are so blinded to it. So yeah. I'm not sure what the question was, but if it was about it relating, the yeah. school that I'm in is definitely, it, it it definitely could prepare a fifth grader to be on Rikers Island right now. Wow. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, no, that was, that was really, really good. Thank you. Um, so now we're going to transition towards our final segment of the show, okay. Well, our our official final segment before we get to the word to the why segment. Uh, so solutions for the system. All right. So this third and final segment of the day, wise community folks, is solutions for the system. So now before I read this fourth question, I wanted to open up with a brief 
just a brief excerpt from a story uh, from the root article from this uh, root article from last year. Um, okay, so here we go. No one knew. No one knew when 25-year-old guard Kariana Alexi found the body of Jaquin Thomas hanging in a New Orleans jail cell. She didn't know that Thomas had been dead for more than 90 minutes. According to the advocate, Alexi had not been trained to check on Thomas every 15 minutes, as mandated by a federal consent decree. When she passed Jaquin's cell earlier that evening and saw him writing, she had no idea that he was penning his suicide note. Uh, principal, oh, sorry, excuse me. Prison officials didn't seem to know why Thomas wasn't given his medication for a mental illness. The Times became reports that Thomas's family couldn't get answers to why the New Orleans Justice Center, an adult jail, had only one deputy supervising 13 inmates on Joaquin's tear. Tear. No one had any idea why Joaquin hanged himself, but New Orleans Parish Sheriff's Office Attorney Blake Akuri assured everyone that it wasn't because he had been quote-unquote jumped by other inmates who repeatedly stole his food. On October 17, 2016, when Joaquin Thomas committed suicide at the New Orleans Justice Center, there was only one thing that everyone knew. He was 15 years old. So I mentioned this excerpt from this story from The Root Ladies to lead with this question. Are, are certified or non-certified professionals involved in the decision to charge children as adults? If not, should this be the next step? So again, are certified slash or non-certified professionals involved in the decision to charge children as adults? If not, should should this be the next step? And when I say these uh, professionals, I include social workers, psychologists, mental health professionals. And if I am ignorant to anything that I have just said, please be sure to inform me and as well as the WISE community um, while we have the chance. Uh, Felicia, I'll start with you first. Um, so I think that that question is a little complicated. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. I think on one hand, there have been examples of um, mental health or otherwise professionals that have been involved in the process of determining whether or not a young person um, should or should not be detained or all of these kinds of things, and it has not necessarily been helpful um, because those professionals don't understand the young person, don't know the young person, um, don't really care, um, are not necessarily, like, in a position to make a recommendation and not making recommendations not necessarily based on the young person's um, social position or social location, but more on just, like, you know, I'm going to testify to, like, a risk or behavior or whatever have you. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the other hand, I have seen how that has been helpful. So Ashley and I as social workers, we have had to and have been in the position where we've had to write letters on behalf of young people um, to the judges, to the prosecutors to say, hey, we don't think that this young person should be detained. We don't think that this young person should um, go to jail. We think that this young person deserves to um, have the opportunity to be placed either in an alternative to incarceration program or this young person has done um, what they need to do and should not be placed on any kind of supervision at all and should just really be released to live their best life, right? Yeah. And I've seen how that has made a difference. There have been some times, some wins, some victories for us where we've written that letter, the judge, the DA sees it, and is like, okay, you know what? 
based on that letter plus other factors like, okay, we're going to either allow this young person to be, you know, um, judged or sentenced more leniently or we're not even going to, um, you know, sentence them to jail or whatever have you. Um, so I think that it's complicated because it, it, it could work in some cases and then it couldn't and then there are some cases where it doesn't work. Um, I think a third kind of, you know, thing to add to the pot is that, you know, a lot of times, mental health professionals or otherwise are not necessarily respected in the process, right? Mm, okay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you think of judges or ADAs or even defense attorneys, like, they're the ones that went to law school, they're the ones that understand the law, they're the ones that understand the um, crime and risk, even NY, you know, or, or the police, I, I say NYPD because I'm here in New York, but um, even police, like, they're the ones that know whether or not... Um, someone if they committed a crime is risky not risky yada 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 so who is this mental health professional or otherwise certified professional coming in and saying i have a different opinion like your opinion is not valid or does not hold a lot of weight because you are not a part of the system itself you're an outsider so you don't understand um and so i've seen that happen too i've seen um to myself and to, to my colleagues and, and friends um, where we stand up in court and we're like, judge, listen, X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z, this young person, X, 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 and X. And I've had the ADA, you know, get up and say, judge, your honor, like, I really think that I don't really care what kind of accolades that this social worker is given and I don't really care what program he was involved in. The, the fact of the matter is that he was, he committed the robbery. So let's put that on the table and let's remember that, you know? And so it's like, I'm not debating whether or not harm was committed or whatever have you or who I'm not debating that. I'm saying like, let's, if we're going to talk about this, let's talk about it from a more contextualized and nuanced view. Um, But there's sometimes that doesn't, that doesn't hold weight. So I think that if we're talking about solutions, I don't think that that is, I think that that's one in terms of like one thing that we can add to the pot, but I don't think that in and of itself it stands or is strong enough to actually be a solution to what we see in the system. Excellent. Uh, Ashley? Um, I definitely agree with uh, Felicia. I think we um, as social workers are seen as the, as the body that's supposed to Keep the good in anything and so it's like she is going to say whatever she needs to say to get this person out of like you know jail time but in reality like we just assess we look at the whole entire person right. um and i don't think every time we come we're coming to like bail them out quote unquote is we're we're literally just we have the time because that's what we're hired to do we have the time to assess you as a whole individual like what is going on at home how did you grow up like is this something that's you know is your dad incarcerated is your mom incarcerated so that information to Felicia's point it could be very helpful um, to present to a judge but at the end of the day the sad thing is that the judge has the final decision so you can get a judge that um compassionate, um, empathetic, and is going to take the time to read it. Um, but I've had judges take letters that I wrote and, like, looked at it and tossed it to the side. I was like, okay. And so it's, it, it literally is scary because your your fate lies in the hands of one person who holds so much power. Right. Um, irregardless of what I say, um, 
in regards of like the effort that I felt that I put into like getting my degree and obtaining my degree and obtaining my license, like to police employee is always those that see themselves as like, oh, but I put in more work. I know this better than you. Right. And it's like, I'm studying the person that you're trying to try. I'm not trying to understand the law as you see it. Mm-hmm. But for them, it's just like, she's social working me again. So it's, 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 <laughs> a funny, it's a funny place. Right, right, right. That's a term. <laughs> She's social working me again. <laughs> that's true. I would also add one point that actually just made me think of is mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Um, we have the ability to be objective, and I don't think that people trust that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that people, you know, to our point of seeing the good and everything, I think people automatically assume that, um, you know, we're about to come and we're about to ignore um everything that we see on the table, everything that this young person might have, and just say, yeah, judge, just like, don't hold them accountable for any harm that they might commit. And I think that that's really important because then we get shut out because it's like, you're going to say something good anyway. Um, And sometimes our advocacy is not necessarily like, judge, don't, you know, don't, uh, you know, don't uh, hold them accountable for their harm. Sometimes it's like, hey, I understand that they've committed this harm here are all this, the factors that are also at work. So can you look at this and say, instead of five years, three years? Like, mm-hmm. sometimes it's right. really like just advocating for something that's, quote-unquote, fear. Right. Or, or something that is uh, 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 um, balanced in the sense of, like, this is what this particular crime or whatever is worth. Um, right. But I think that that's a really important point because it's like, you know, we're not just coming in and saying, hey, like, a magic wand. Please, please, please let me plead for this person because I just think that all people should just, you know, do whatever they want to do. It's like, no, like, I can be objective and I can be honest, right? Like, mm-hmm. there had been times where we would have to write the letter and say, yes, judge, like, they didn't show up for X and X appointment. They didn't engage in services. They didn't do whatever, whatever. And it's not because we were like trying to get the young person locked up. It's because we wanted to be respected in the sense that we are able to show up to the table and be honest. And even though I might say, yeah, they didn't show up to their appointments, I'm also going to understand like, is there a reason? Is there something that I should also present alongside this um, that matters that is significant? So for sure, like, yes, that was like, oh yes, 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 that has happened. No, for sure, for sure. Appreciate that. Yeah, I don't like just going off of what you said too. It just seems as if also in regards to writing those letters and trying to you know convey to the judge that um, you know uh, these these young people that they deserve a second chance or they deserve a you know a, you know a more fair sentence. It sounds as if you know you um, you both in terms of the work you do. You're not attempting to say, oh, like, you know, you know, they're fully reformed or they fully changed. But, you know, but when you think about the decision you'll make in, in regards to their fate, because their fate lies in your hands, just, you know, allow it to be something in terms of the decision that's justified in regards to what they've done. Not something that is um, egregiously, um, you know, egregiously ridiculous in terms of like, wow, like five, six, seven years. Like, is that really necessary? You know, especially if they put in all this work to kind of, you know, better themselves and to improve. Um, so I think that's pretty interesting. Um, 
Okay, well, we've made it to the final question of the podcast today. All right, um, so Ashley, I'm going to start with you first, and then I'm going to have Felicia uh, get the last word on this. So the final question I'd like to pose to you both uh, is, are there any solutions to correcting or updating the juvenile justice system? Uh, what can be done? Again, are there any solutions to correcting or updating the juvenile justice system? What can be done? Ashley. That's uh that's a tough question. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't see solutions right now mm-hmm. um, of correcting the system, except to like, like do a complete like dismantling of the system, like starting from the bottom up, like because everything that's happening is built on the shoulders of bigots who, um, on, like, you know, white supremacy, like, all of these things that we are feeling, that we are subjected to as black and brown people, are built by people who are in power, who who are afraid of us. And so because they are afraid of us and they don't know how to respond to us, um, they decide to find a way to treat us inhumanely and keep us captive um, and teach us kind of like if you lock somebody up long enough, like it's almost like being in, in the zoo. When you see like an animal that's like in a cage for too long, they start acting egregiously. Like it's not humane to be incarcerated for the amount of hours that people are incarcerated. And so it's just they had to find a way to kind of silence us to contain us and I think that this is their way and so how the only way I see us really getting a solution like getting like the the results that we want as black and brown people Mm -hmm. and not the things that white people are providing to us to make us feel better or put a band-aid on our pain is to like wipe out the bottom right Um, and that can sound really radical it can sound like I'm I'm on my I'm almost like feeling like I'm on my mouth from next time. Like we just gotta start <laughs> you know, like by any means necessary, like things just have to start like we have to start showing up. Like almost like give them something to be afraid of. Because when you think about our role in society, we have never done anything to create that fear. Right. We haven't done anything like profound to make them say, oh, we should be scared. Even when you think about Nat Turner and his revolution, it came in response to how they were already treating us. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like, what have we done to shake them up? And at this point, if you think I'm going to shake you up, let me shake you up then. That's that's how I'm feeling. And so it's just like, we just need to start at the bottom, dismantle a few things. You know, some people going to have to sacrifice. They're going to have to be that martyr. But things got to change, like, and it's going to be, like, sacrifice and, like, dismantling, and I don't see how that's going to happen, but that's the solution that I'm seeing in my head right now. Ashley, I'm actually going to play devil's advocate with you. Well, do you think one can argue or um, uh, a white person can argue that, you know, it it is the exact things that they have seen, you know, within media in regards to news on television about, oh my gosh, a a robbery committed in this neighborhood or a break in here or a shootout occurring on the highway with African-Americans and Latinos, Latinas involved. Like, do you think that, you know, that is something that they would point to in defense of everything that it is that you're saying right now? I 
think they can. I think they will. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like the only reason why you see everything is like controlled by the government. Right. So I I also feel like white people are doing the same thing, but they're not put on the news every time they do it. Right. Um, white on white crime is happening, but it's not on the news every time they do it. Mm-hmm. It's like it's almost like if somebody waiting in the in the wings for us to do something. Oh, they did it again. It's like. Yeah. <laughs> a white person saying that he probably did the same exact thing. Yeah. But so yeah. we're gonna be put we're gonna be put on the pedestal, um, as this this, you know what was what was the thing that Clinton called us? Super something, I forgot what it was. But super like Super Predators. Super Predators, yeah. Yeah, super predators. So yeah, so it's just like but it's because what is portrayed on TV. They know they know how to present us in a way they have the control. Yeah. So they know how to present us in a way that's going to keep the fear in them. But it's like they're doing the same exact thing. It's just not on TV. And then when they do do it, it's like uh, shoot up the church, kill everybody in the church. But then we, we you know we lock him up. He get his day in jail, and then he get Burger King. I mean, really, I, I just it's just like that. And when you and then. Is it that clear, that clear, like, difference of, like, when a white person does something super egregious? Like, I feel like walking into a church service and killing people, like, while they're praying, that is, that just don't even make no sense. That's idiotic. Mm -hmm. Like, if a black person was to do that same thing in a synagogue, Mm. they would have him, they would have a black brother or sister hung by a tree by the end of the night. Right. That's that is it. Like, it, and it's just that clear separation that like drives me crazy. So they, to your point, they may you know say, well, they're on TV. That's great. I want to spend a, I want to spend a week or two weeks in your community and see what turns up there. And I'm gonna have my mic and I'm gonna have my camera so that y'all gonna be on camera every time y'all do something too. So, yeah. That sounds good. Yeah. No, for sure, for sure, definitely. If if Mark was here, Mark would have done it. So I said, you know what? Let me play a little Mark right now. <laughs> Mark Advocate, <laughs> uh, Felicia, uh, sound off. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Um, so I'm I'm really sounding off to like, what should we do now? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Any solutions? How do we co- correct? Um, How do we update? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, and I think that this is one of the things that a lot of times folks that are um, critical of the criminal justice system and other systems get um, criticized for in terms of, like, not having clear solutions, not having, like, bing, bing, boom, this is what we would do instead or alternatives. Um, But I think for something like this, it's really hard to think about, um, I think, overall radical um, um, overhauls. I agree with Ashley in the sense that um, I absolutely think that anything that's going to like actually make change, it has to be radical. It has to be an entire overhaul of everything that we think um, we know that we think we should do that has been done. Like we can't follow any like former patterns or formal former um, ways of thinking. Like all of that has to go to the side, and we have to sit and put our minds together and be like what are new things that we can come up with? Um, and there was one time, actually, I have a friend who, there was one point where I met with her and we were doing like a, a dream, I want to say like a 
I, I don't even remember what she called it, but like we were doing a circle and she had asked us a question about like, you know, how do we envision like this new system, like a new world, right? That is like free of the systems that we are always fighting against. And I remember being so like, everybody's over there scribbling on their papers and I'm like sitting with my paper and I'm like, I have nothing to put, I have nothing to put. And then I remember writing on my paper, like, I don't know how to imagine that. And I remember sharing like, you know, I can't even imagine what it looks like not to have, you know, racism or not to have disproportionality for black folks in the criminal justice system. I don't even know what that looks like. And I remember her um, response to me being like, what does it look like what does joy look like? What does happiness look like? What does it look like for people when their needs are met? Like, how would you describe a world like that? And that really sat with me because I was just like, word, instead of thinking of um, we need to change the system to make it proportionate, it's like, how do, we, how do we envision what it looks like for neighborhoods and communities to have the things that they are in need of? Like, what does it look like to um, provide people with stable and affordable and appropriate housing? What does it look like to make sure people have access to food? What does it look like to make sure that people have ac access and can afford health care? Like, those kinds of things, I believe that if we address those things and actually intentionally address it because there's also a book um, that I um, have kept with me and I – I think the, the title is like how nonprofits fail to alleviate poverty or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it talks about this like nonprofit um, in, uh, industrial complex as well, how there are folks that have been toiling and toiling and toiling for hundreds of years to eliminate these things. And it's like, okay, but we're still here. And I think part of that is um, the fact that it is very vast, but the part of it is also that if we really worked on these things and solve them, we would be out of jobs, right? We would be out of, we wouldn't have no nonprofits. Very and true. Very and for true. some people, that's not going to work, right? Like, what? I can't be the CEO of this nonprofit? Like, how? Mm -hmm. But I believe that if we really work to solve these issues, then we could be in our communities and we could be self sufficient. We could um, really grow and be creative and, and live and love. Um, in ways that don't require a social worker, don't require a nonprofit, don't require all of these things. Hmm. So essentially, I think all of what I'm saying is, um, on one hand, I definitely think it's going to be a radical, a radical overturn, and that overturn is going to be based on um, us envisioning what it looks like when people's needs are met. And on the other hand, I think making specific changes uh, will also help us um, get to the next to the thing that we weren't looking for. And um, when I say specific changes, I mean, for example, like New York raised their age of majority from 16 to 18. Now, that's not a big, great difference in terms of a mental, you know, a young person's mental capacity at 16 versus 18. Um, but it's, it's significant, right? Because New York was only one of two states that still had an age of majority that low. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, or age of responsibility. But, um I think specific changes like that, like, you know, acknowledging like, okay, well, 16 versus 18, and while that not be, might not be a huge difference, it's a difference enough to start understanding like, well, if this young person can't buy cigarettes or, you know, isn't considered quote-unquote legal yet at 16, how do we say that he's quote-unquote old enough to be charged as an adult? 
Um, so yeah, I think it's going to be a, a both and. I don't think it's an either or. I think we both have to focus on the small, specific steps, but then also not abandon the bigger vision and and vice versa, not abandon the bigger vision for the smaller steps. I love it. I love it. All right, so we've made it to our final segment of the evening, all right, which is word to the wise, okay? Um, Felicia, I, well, I'll leave it up to you all. Um, I don't know who would like to go last between you or Ashley, but um, I guess you guys could just decide right now, or I could decide for you, but I don't know who would like to go last. <laughs> Felicia could go last. Okay, okay, <laughs> that's cool, that's cool, that's cool. Now that's perfect, that gives you enough time, Felicia, to think of a word. All right, and so again, so since you are um, our guest for today's show, uh, so Ashley, you'll go after me, and then Felicia, you can go last. Um, so today's word to the wise, I want it to be tailored a little bit different. So for me personally, I'm going to focus upon the child itself um, due to my work as an educator and as a teacher. So I want to focus on the student as if I've you know, been given the opportunity to talk to uh, my student once again, um, the one who recently uh, got into a bit of trouble or any students that I uh, expect to not only teach but to mentor, continue mentoring in the future. Um, as for you ladies, I will allow you both to do uh, what you feel is best um, in terms of your target audience, whether it be the the legislature or the students or the judicial system itself. So you pick uh, exactly who it is that you would like to uh, target or cater your word to. Um, so my word to the wise for today, I'm actually going to try to cheat and go with two words. Um, and those two words are decisions. Decisions is one of them and choices. Um, and again, I'm catering my word to the wise to uh, my 7th and 8th grade students out there. Um, your decisions affect every single thing that you do. Um, with decisions comes consequences. Same thing with uh, with your choices. Decisions and choices are pretty much synonymous. They, they both mean the same thing. When you make, when you have a choice, well, you have a choice to do whatever it is that you want, but when you make a choice or you make a decision to do something, just know that there will be an impending result that comes after whatever it is that you decide to do, whether it's go to school and get a degree, you know, the likelihood is that you are going to prosper and get a job, or at least that's the hope, right? Um, and as opposed to if you do the opposite, if you decide to rob a liquor store late at night or commit a burglary, a burglary or um, a robbery with four or five of your homies, you know, you're definitely going to go down. And it's possible that not only will you go down, but you will be facing a lot of prison time for a very long time as a felon. Um, so I say that to say, be wise and be sure of exactly which choice or decision you're going to make. I know that's easier said than done, especially at the tender age of 12, 13, 14, 15, but I'm, I'm, I'm letting you all know right now, um, speaking to my young men out there, my young boys, um, you might have love for your homies, you might have love for the people who you grew up with and, and all that other stuff, but the judicial system itself, the country itself, doesn't have love for you. Um, it doesn't care about what you think or that you were pressured into the decisions that you ultimately made. Uh, it doesn't care about how old you were. It doesn't care that, you know, it was only your first time or your first offense. Depending on what state you live in, you know, you can get it worse, you know, you can get it worse than other people depending, you know, what territory or what region of the United States 
the states that they're in because we all know that all these countries have you know they vary in regards to their laws and you know how that works and obviously I'm not too well versed in that and it's too particular for me so I'm not going to get into it but you know I think no matter what part of the United States that you're in as a black man or a black or a young black woman you know it doesn't matter what region you're in I think choices and decisions ultimately play a huge effect in regards to where your life will uh, head towards and how you will um, how it will wind up in general so just be sure of the decisions you make be sure of the choices you make and be sure that when you make these decisions and choices that you know that it is not only beneficial for you but to your family and it is in one accord of where you see yourself going in a positive way so that's that'll be my words to the wise today both the words of choices and decisions uh, Ashley what's your word to the wise that was good. I would have said I could go last if I would have had to be the seat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I think I want my word word is the word of the wise or word to the wise. Word to the word to the wise. You got it. Yeah, word to the wise. Okay. <laughs> I think I want my word to the wise to go to the the service professionals of the judicial system. Can mm. I do that? That's perfect. Yeah, yeah. Please feel free. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um. So I have my word, and it's change. I'm going to copy you, Kevin. Change and hope are the two words that came to my mind, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and so one quote that always, like, sat with me, I'm not even sure who it came from, was, like, be the change that you want to see in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what I would say to the social, my social service uh, colleagues is to, every time things get difficult in this difficult system, to remember your why. Remember why you started and always keep in mind the young brothers and sisters that need you and need the person that you didn't have when you were a young person. Um, and so I think that would be my way to the wise. Always remember your why whenever things get hard, and be the be the social worker, be the reentry specialist, whomever that you needed when you were a young person. I love it. I love it. And and last but not least, Felicia, what's your word to the wise today? Ooh, um, so I thought about hope too, but my final word I'll say is human, hmm. and um, that is directed to uh, folks that work and control the system. Um, and that's specifically just a reminder that people are actual people. They're human beings. They're not just a number or a statistic um, or, you know, a member of this racial ethnic group. Like, they're an actual human being. And I think that if, one, we acknowledge them as, as such, but also remember that they were that throughout the process, I think that we would have show some more compassion and grace to people who commit harm. Because the reality is, and I never want to, you know, take that away, that there are folks that do commit harm. There are folks that experience harm. And we have to deal with that, right? We have to hold those that commit the harm accountable. And we have to also um, support and allow the folks that have, you know, have harm committed against them to be able to heal. Um, but at the end of the day, both of those parties are human um, so it's still important to remember that throughout whatever process of accountability that um, we're setting up. So that's my word. Love it. Love it. Love it. Ladies, where can they find you online? I'll start with you first, Ashley. Um, online, I'm 
You can find me on Instagram. Um, my um, hashtag, is it a hashtag? My IG name, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> Her Black, mm-hmm. Been Beautiful, underscore. Okay. Um, that's where you can find me. Yes, me and me. Excellent, excellent. And Felicia, how about yourself? Um, I feel like I'd be all over the place. Um, you can find me. Um, <laughs> my website is FeliciaHenry.com. So you can find me primarily there. Um, and then I am on Instagram for Behind the Walls at um, Behind the Walls, Between the Lines, or uh, BTW underscore movement. Mm-hmm. So BTW underscore movement, that is Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, the whole shebang. But yeah, if you, you know, want to email me, all of that. Love it, love it, love it, love it. First and foremost, oh my gosh, Wise Community, see, uh, this is what I'm talking about. Every time we have guests on, especially women, you can always guarantee that they're going to bring about a myriad of different ideas and perspectives. And not only that, you know, again, this podcast is geared towards self-improvement, whether it be for the uh, young student that is currently working their way through the system that is public school education, or whether that be, you know, towards a young person that's, you know, a bit older and is just graduating college and is working their way into social work. So that way we all can grow as a community together and continue to grow, shape, and transform our lives. And for anyone out there, I'm letting you know right now, Felicia has one of the best blogs on the internet. I ch- like I don't check on it often, but maybe every six, <laughs> seven months or so. And and there's a reason as to why I'm saying this. Every six, seven months or so, I will go to Felicia's blog and see what she has posted lately because she's very sporadic. She doesn't write as often, and I could understand she has a very busy schedule. But sometimes it'll be like I think the last time it was like 11 months. I was like, you know what? Let me go see what, what Felicia got going on. And I checked, and I was like, oh my gosh, she had two posts in the last year. I said, well, let me read up. <laughs> So I say that to put pressure on Felicia to write more blog entries. I hear it. I hear it. Okay. Um, yes, 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 yes. Um, such, such tremendous talents. Please, wise community, please be sure when, when this episode officially is posted and released on all streaming platforms, please be sure to contact these women. Let them know your thoughts. If you work within the social work field uh, or any part of the judicial system, please be sure to question them, you know, provide them with comments, you know, tell them what you thought about this episode, what you thought about their ideas. Please, please, please. The focal point of this whole entire podcast is to transform and shape lives and to continue to grow this astounding community um so uh other than that on the behalf of mark and myself ladies i honestly i really appreciate this and especially you too ashley this being last minute thank you both for coming on tonight thank you thank you kevin so much mark also thank you but yeah it's really dope to be able um to be to be on here and to be invited so thank you so much i'm so excited for this and all of the wise things that you all are going to be talking about and sharing. And absolutely shout out to my homegirl, Ashley, because she holds it down always. And the fact that I texted her and was like, yo, what are you doing? Join this podcast. And she was like, bet? (laughs) Shout out to you. (laughs) I love you so much. No, for sure. Ladies, again, thank you both. I really, really do appreciate it. And again, Ashley, thank you so much, especially it being so short notice for sure. Um, All right. Well, look, 
that's it. That's our episode for today, Wise Community. Please, please, please make sure that you are continuing to be tuned in and focused uh, and locked in and focused with us, with the Wise Guys. All right. On Instagram, we're Wise Guys NYC. All right. On Twitter and Facebook, we're The Wise Guys NYC. If you'd like to send us an email about this episode or kind of give us some ideas for future topics for the show, please send an email to thewiseguysnyc at gmail.com. All right. Um, we're currently building our website. So the more we continue to build it, I'll be sure to keep you all plugged and tuned in. You can find this podcast on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud. Uh, let's see, I'm missing one. YouTube, Stitcher Radio. All right, so you can find us on all those streaming platforms. And please, if you truly, truly do enjoy this podcast as we near towards season's end, as we only have two episodes left, please be sure to make sure that you have shared this podcast with at least one friend, especially an, an episode in particular that you might have enjoyed that you know your friend or family member may specialize in or they may really appreciate that topic and they would enjoy um, this podcast as well. All right, uh, so next week, hopefully Mark will be back. We will be moving towards episodes 24 which is the realities of tv okay again so hopefully mark will be back uh shout out to my boy mark and we will be talking about the realities of television all right the realities of tv so as i said at the beginning of this podcast this is your boy kevin unglad and we are joined by our very special guest ladies this is where you say your names <laughs> and Excellent, excellent, excellent. And we are the Wise Guys Podcast. We'll see you all next week. And if Mark was here, he'd say, stay wise.